our mess and all of our brokenness and all of our sin and all of our pain and all of our struggles and you're not afraid of that. You step in and you pursue us and you love us where you find us and you love us so much that you won't leave us there. And Father, as we, as we come to your word now, we need to see you. We need to see Jesus. So open our eyes, soften our hearts, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see the beauty of Jesus in your word. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Hey, I am Josh. I am one of the pastors of Soma, primarily uh, up at the Midtown congregation, and so I've had the opportunity to meet a number of you guys over the past few weeks. Uh, And one of the reasons, the primary reason, uh, that I get to be here today is to introduce you to Greta Marilyn Livingston. And so uh, the Livingstons had their baby on on, uh, Tuesday. And, um, you know, first girl, so there's a lot of glamour shots uh, going on. And uh, Sharon finally decided that this was the press release photo. And so uh, this is Greta Marilyn Livingston. Obviously so thankful for the Livingstons to be able to uh, welcome her into their family and also uh, to welcome her into the Soma family. So uh, excited to be with you guys today. Today, uh, may be aware, you may not be aware, is Palm Sunday. So it's a day where the church has historically remembered the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. It's, it kind of kicks off what's called Holy Week. And so Holy Week is, uh, starts on Palm Sunday. It goes through uh, Good Friday when Jesus was executed for the sins of the world. Uh, and then uh, concludes with Easter Sunday, which the, the, of course, as, as Christians believe, that Jesus rose from the dead. And so Palm Sunday kind of kicks all of that off. And one of the reasons I love that we observe Palm Sunday here at Soma um, is because this really joins us together with the church throughout history. Like, I don't know if you think about this, but today there are Christians literally all over the world in every inhabited continent, in every country on earth who are joining together and who are remembering this today. And there have been Christians for the last 2,000 years who, in, in every corner of the globe who have been celebrating this. And so we don't like worship in isolation. Yes, this is us, but it's not just us. We are part of something universal that God is doing, at, that Jesus instituted when he rode into Jerusalem that Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. And it kicked off a chain of events in one week, I would say, one week which is the most pivotal week, the most important week in the history of humanity. The week that literally changed the world. Because what you find when you look into the, the, the Gospels of Jesus, when you look into the early biographies of Jesus, you find that Jesus, especially in this final week of his life, turned everything upside down. He turns our concept of God upside down. He turns our concept of religion upside down. He turns our concept of life upside down. Because what he does is he steps in as the king and he invites us into his kingdom. He shows us what true greatness looks like and he calls us to follow his example. He came to change the world and he came to change your life and mine. And if these things land on us, if we actually come to terms with what Jesus did 2,000 years ago and half a world away, it'll change everything for us. 
So we're going to look into John chapter 12. John chapter 12, uh, and we're going to do verse 12 through 26. So if you have a, a copy of the scriptures on your phone, or there should be one around you, I'm going to read this passage, and then we're going to get into this text. John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written. So this is a prophecy here that, that, that John is quoting. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not, remember these, or did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been there with him when he called Lazarus and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone loves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So we're going to see three primary things in this passage today, three realities that if these land on you and if these take root in your heart, they will change everything for you. So three things. One, the unexpected king. Two, the universal kingdom. And three, the upside-down road to glory. And we'll walk through these as we walk through the text. The unexpected king, the universal kingdom, and the upside-down road to glory. Unexpected king, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You've been around church. If you've studied the the Bible much, you've probably heard this referred to as the triumphal entry. And I always found that kind of ironic because if you actually read it, it's not triumphal at all. Like here's Jesus. He's walking to Jerusalem and he has to go borrow some guy's donkey because he doesn't have a donkey to ride on. And it's a donkey. Okay, like, this is, like, if you're the king and you're going to, to take the throne, you're supposed to come in on a white horse. You're supposed to come in on a chariot. Jesus is riding in on a donkey. So this is like the sons of anarchy rolling into town on mopeds. Is that out of place? I, um, it's kind of embarrassing. My wife met me when, when I did this. Um, I, I used to drive a Hyundai Elantra. Now, nothing wrong with a Hyundai Elantra. Probably some Hyundai Elantra drivers in here. It's a good car good gas mileage. It runs well, a very sensible vehicle. Here was the only problem with my particular Hyundai Elantra. It was mint green. Like, and like, like pastel mint green. 
Now listen, I am not the biggest, baddest guy who's ever walked the planet, uh, but I did used to work as a bouncer, and and I like to believe that I can bench press anybody in this room. Uh, Whether it's true or not, it's what I like to believe. And so so for me, driving around in this mint green Hyundai Elantra was a blow to my manhood. And at the very best, it's out of step of what I want people to think about me. And listen, that's kind of what's happening here. Jesus is riding in. He's riding into Jerusalem, and and you're expecting a king. But this is not the ride that you expect for a king. But it's actually very intentional because Jesus is showing us that he is a different kind of king. And he intentionally chooses to ride in. Like, Jesus could have had anything he wanted to ride into Jerusalem. He intentionally chooses to ride in on a donkey because a donkey is a beast of burden. Because a donkey, a whole purpose of the donkey is to bear other people's burdens. See, Jesus isn't simply coming in as the conquering king. He's riding in as the suffering servant. John tells us, when does this happen? He tells us it happens at the time of Passover. Now, if you're a Jewish person living at the time of Jesus, Passover is the holiest day. It is the holiest time of the year. We're going to cover this in a a few weeks when we get to Exodus 12. But here's the background. And this is the background that was woven into the psyche of a Jewish person in Jesus' time. Background is this, Exodus chapter 12. People of Israel are slaves in Egypt. And and God says, I'm going to rescue you. So God goes to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no way. And so God says, I'm going to send these plagues. And he sends all these plagues. And Pharaoh keeps saying, no. And then finally God says, I'm going to send one last plague. I'm going to send the angel of death through the land, and he's going to kill all the firstborns of the Egyptians. And then he tells the people of Israel, here's how you're going to escape this judgment. Kill a lamb, spread the blood on the doorposts of your house, so when the angel of death goes through the land, he will literally pass over. He will literally pass over your homes. And whoever is covered in the blood of the lamb will be saved. So that's the background here. God delivers his people through the blood of the lamb. And that should tip you off to something. That should should tip us off to something. This is the kind of king Jesus is. This is the kind of deliverer that he is. He's not going to be the king who triumphs by slaughtering his enemies. He's going to be the king who triumphs by by being slaughtered for them. He's not just coming in as a king. He is coming in as a sacrifice. The conquering king is the sacrificial lamb. And so Jesus comes in to Jerusalem at Passover, and and you can understand why they're really excited about a king, right? I mean, they're celebrating their independence. They're remembering thousands of years ago, God rescued our ancestors, and and maybe God's going to do it again. Because at this time, Palestine, Israel is under under the rule of the Romans, and so they're, they're crying out, God, would you do it again? God, would you drive out these foreign oppressors? And then Jesus steps into the story, and they've heard about him. They've heard, this is a guy who heals the sick. This is the guy who, who feeds the multitudes. This is the guy who casts out demons. This is the guy who raises the dead. And he's talking about the kingdom of God. So they run out and they say, they welcome him as a king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord but he's not the kind of king that they're expecting. They're expecting this political revolutionary. They're expecting someone who's going to set them free from from political powers. By the way, that's why they waved palm branches. 
Have you ever wondered that? Like, what's the deal with the palm branches? Was it like the wave at a football game? Are they just like, think it looks cool? Why are they waving the palm branches? A little historical background. The palm branch at the time of Jesus was actually a symbol of Jewish nationalism. So if you go back about 150 years before Jesus, um, there's, there's an empire that, that is uh, controlling Palestine. It's called the Seleucid Empire. A really awful, oppressive kind of regime. And so there's this guy named Judas Maccabeus. He leads this rebellion, and he drives out the Seleucids. And, and, and the people of Israel have a, a brief period of independence. And during that time, they start printing their own money. And guess what they put on their money? They put a palm branch. There's a picture of it right there. So this is actually from a little after the time of Jesus. But for about those 300 years or so, before, 150 years before and after Jesus, the palm branch is known through archaeology to be kind of a symbol of Jewish nationalism. So that's what they're looking for. They're saying, hey, this guy's going to come in, and this guy's going to drive out the Romans, and this guy is going to be a political liberator, and this guy is going to set us free. And in one sense, they're right. In one sense, they're right. Jesus is the king but he is not the kind of king that they're expecting. He is going to conquer, but he's not going to conquer in the way that they expect because they expected a triumphant warrior and instead what they got was a suffering servant. They expected a general on a white horse and instead what they got was a servant riding a donkey. Now let me, let me ask you and let me ask me, what, what kind of king are you expecting? What kind of savior are you expecting? What are you putting your hope and your trust in? Because odds are, if you're sitting in in church on a rainy Sunday morning in the Midwest, you're probably thinking, yeah, like, I got my trust in Jesus. These crowds would have said the exact same thing. They welcomed him as king. They cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then five days later, they cry out, crucify him. See, they were trusting in Jesus, but they weren't trusting in the real Jesus. They were trusting in in a figment of their imagination. They were trusting in a Jesus fit into their mold and played by their rules. And so for those of us in this room, sitting in church on a Sunday morning, especially in the Midwest where it seems like everybody believes in Jesus in some way, shape, or form, the question is not, are you trusting in Jesus? The question is, which Jesus are you trusting in? Are you trusting in the actual historical Jesus who lived and died and rose again 2,000 years ago? Or are you trusting in a Jesus who plays by your rules and fits into your paradigms and that you've made up in your own imagination? They are trusting Jesus as a means to an end. He's their means to political independence. He is their means to their social agenda. And yet Jesus comes along and he says things like this. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. And Jesus, instead of conquering, he begins to take the path of humility and service and suffering. And he doesn't fit into their paradigms, so they begin to turn on him. And they reject him, and eventually they murder him. So let me ask you, which Jesus are you trusting in? Like, maybe you're like them. Maybe Jesus is a, is a social liberator. He's a political liberator for you. And so what happens then when you continue to see injustice or oppression that still plague the world? begin to question, is this guy really the king? Maybe Jesus is is simply the means to the good life, right? Physical health, financial prosperity. And then what happens when you lose your job or you get sick? We begin to question, is is he really the king? Maybe Jesus is your means to a happy family and, and happy relationships. 
And then your marriage starts to fall apart. And your kids go off the rails or you wait and you wait and you wait and you never meet that special someone. We begin to doubt. Do I really trust this guy? Is this guy really the king? Now listen, Jesus meets those needs. Jesus does wonderful things in our families and he has an agenda to to bring justice in society, but he doesn't always live up to our expectations. And if Jesus is simply a means to an end for you, if you're just in it to get something else, you will always become disappointed because it will never be enough. Even if you get those things, Even if you get that perfect family and those perfect relationships and that perfect health and that perfect agenda, all of those things, they will still never satisfy you because the only thing that can perfectly satisfy you is a perfect savior. He was not the kind of king that they were expecting and he may not be the kind of king that we're expecting either, but he is exactly the kind of king that we need. He is not the king who meets our expectations. He is the king who infinitely exceeds our expectations, who gives us something so much better than we would ever dare to hope for or expect, who takes our expectations and turns them upside down, rides in as a king, but he takes the role of a servant. He comes to conquer, but he conquers through love and suffering and sacrifice and service. Think about the kind of king you want. Imagine in your mind, what's a great leader? What's the kind of person that I want to follow? What's the kind of person that I want as my king? He's bold. He's courageous. He's a fierce warrior who can look death in the eye. But he's also meek and humble. He's a servant who loves and lives and leads for the good of his people. His eyes are the first to flash with anger in the face of injustice, and they're the first to well with tears in the face of suffering. That's the kind of king, that's the kind of ideal leader that we think about, and you will search history in vain for anyone else like him, but that is the kind of king that we find in Jesus. And here's the other thing. That's the kind of person that he wants to make you. He wants to make you that kind of a person who reflects his greatness. He wants to make you that kind of a person whose life is characterized by courage and humility, by justice and mercy. Because if you're honest, we all tend toward one side or the other, don't we? Like some of us, we're all about being bold and courageous. We want to stand up against injustice. We want to swim against the tide. But so often, we can drift into belligerence and arrogance and pride. And on the other hand, some of us, we tend to be meek and we tend to be gentle and we want to serve and we want to give. But the shadow side of that is that lots of times that warps into fear and passivity. And depending on how you're wired, and we all have different inclinations in different directions, depending on how you're wired, you're tempted either to be a barbarian or a wimp. Like you're tempted either to be a lion or a lamb. And yet Jesus is both. He's a lion and the lamb. He holds these two sides together in a way that has never been seen before. Look at the world around you. Look at any leader. Take any leader that, that, that you can imagine. Look at the history of the world. You will never find a man who so boldly and courageously spoke the truth and yet a man who so humbly and lovingly served even the very people who denied the truth. This is the God who dies for his people. You look through history, you'll find lions, you will find lambs, you will not find a lion who's a lamb. 
you won't find the king who rides in on a donkey. He is not what we expect, but he is the king that we need. Not the king who meets our expectations, the king who is infinitely better than our expectations. He's a different kind of king. And because of that, he brings a different kind of kingdom. So that's the second thing that turns it all upside down. An unexpected king and a universal kingdom. Because here's what they're expecting. They're expecting a national king who's going to bring a national kingdom. And what they got instead was a universal king who brings a universal kingdom. Verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This, this few verses is a fascinating glimpse into the human heart. This is a fascinating glimpse into my heart. So again, here's the background. You can read about this in John chapter 11. Jesus had this friend named Lazarus. Lazarus dies. Lazarus is in the tomb for four days before Jesus gets there. And Jesus gets to the tomb, and there's all these people standing around, and they're weeping, they're mourning for Lazarus, and Jesus says, open up the tomb. And they open up the tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, it's time to get up. And Lazarus gets up, and he comes out of the tomb. People are standing around, and they're amazed by it. And here's the crazy thing. These, a lot of these Pharisees, a lot of these religious leaders, they were actually there for it. They watched it. They watched Jesus call a dead man out of the grave. And yet, how do they respond? They follow Jesus. Do they turn? Do they listen to Jesus? No, it says, they, like, if you keep reading, they start plotting to kill Jesus. Like, how can you do that? How can you see this guy who claims to be the king, who claims to be bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, he raises a man from the dead, and here's my response, I'm going to kill the guy. Why? Because they felt their power slipping away. Because Jesus had started, people had started to follow Jesus instead of them. And they were so obsessed with holding on to their power that they ignored the reality of the God who raises the dead. And some of us in this room are just like them. Some of us are just like them. Because for many of us, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian, for many of us, what keeps us from really following Jesus is not the evidence. What keeps us from really following him, if we are honest with ourselves, is the fact that we have this need to hold on to power and control. I, I don't want Jesus to have control over my money. I don't want Jesus to have control over sexuality. I don't want Jesus to have control over my relationships. I don't want Jesus to have control over my religion. So what is it for you? What's that thing that you're holding on to? Because whatever it is that you are holding on to, that you're saying Jesus can't have this, you, to the extent that you hold on to that thing, you will miss out on the God who raises the dead. Don't miss out on that. Don't settle for anything less than that. That's what the Pharisees did. Look what they say. They say, the whole world is going after him. Now, if you read the biographies of Jesus, you find the Pharisees, they got a lot of things wrong about Jesus. They got one thing right about Jesus, and it's this. The world is going after him. Verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these are, these are non-Jews. These are Gentiles. 
So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Like, you see it right there. The world is going after Jesus. Not just the Jewish world, which is what they were expecting of their Messiah, what they were expecting of their king, but but even these Greeks, even these non-Jews, they are going after this Jewish Messiah. See, if you read the scriptures, you find that God's heart from Genesis 12 onward has been to bless all the nations, all the ethnic groups, all the families of the world, to bless them all in the coming Savior. And God actually promises one day, a day is coming, when all the nations are going to flood to Jerusalem and they're going to worship before me. Isaiah chapter 2. This is what the Lord says. This is 700 years before Jesus. God prophesies this. Isaiah chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And that's what's happening here. 700 years later, there are these Greeks and they're going up to Jerusalem and they're going up to the mountain of the Lord. But when they get there, they're not content just to look at a stone temple. When they get there, they're not content just for religious practices and religious rituals. When they get there, they say there is only one thing that will satisfy us. We must see Jesus. We must encounter the one true God. And I am afraid that some of us in this room are settling. We're settling for religious ritual. We're settling for just being around the community of God's people, but we've never encountered God. We've never seen Jesus, and he wants to show himself to us. He wants us to encounter him. He shows himself to these Greeks, and that absolutely shatters their paradigms because what they were expecting was that this was just for one group of people. This was just for one ethnic group. And what Jesus shows is that he is building a universal kingdom of a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Listen, do you want to know what's going to happen in history? Do you want to know what the goal of history is and what the meaning of it all is? It's this. This is the trajectory of history. This is where history is moving. Every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping Jesus. And now Jesus steps into the story and he's calling all nations to himself. And then look what Jesus says, verse 23. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you've read the Gospel of John, you hear this phrase over and over again. The hour, the hour, the hour. Uh, Jesus is always saying, my hour has not yet come. So he heals someone. My hour has not yet come. He, he performs a miracle. My hour has not yet come. He casts out a demon. My hour has not yet come. He raises the dead. My hour has not yet come. And yet, here, these guys show up and they ask to see Jesus. These, these worshipers from other nations come looking for Jesus. And Jesus says, now my hour has come. Like that's what he's saying. He is saying, this is the climax. This is the whole point of my life. This is why I'm here. I'm here to establish a universal kingdom. Listen, <laughs> Jesus didn't like leave heaven and come to earth and live and die and rise again just to teach us how to be good people who play well with others. 
He came to inaugurate a universal kingdom. He came to die and rise again to rescue for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's the point of Jesus' story. That's the point of our story. That's the point of the story of the world. Jesus had just been a political revolutionary. If he had just been some kind of ethnic uh, leader who's just leading an ethnic group of people, he would barely be an obscure footnote in the pages of history. But he is not a national king with a national kingdom. He is a universal king with a universal kingdom. That, that, when it comes down to it, that's the only reason we're here today. That's the only reason we're here worshiping him. Most of us in this room do not come from a Jewish ethnic background. And, and yet, we are here with people from all different ethnic backgrounds worshiping this, this Jewish carpenter who preached the gospel and died and rose again 2,000 years ago. He is building a people from every conceivable ethnic background. My son Owen is here today, six years old, and uh, we had the opportunity to go on a field trip with his kindergarten class this past Friday. So... Um, I am happy to report that we survived the day and nobody was maimed or killed, uh, including myself. So we made it through that. I feel like that's a win. But we're, we're on the trip, and I, I look around uh, on the trip. I look around the kids in this class. I look around uh, at, at, at the parents who are there on the trip, and it was this beautiful picture, man. It's this beautiful picture of people with all different shades of skin, of people who come from all different backgrounds, many people who come from, a, from, from countries where uh, Christianity is illegal, even where it's persecuted. And, and we've, we've got a group of people, a bunch of people, there, and, and many of them speak a different language at home than we do. Reality is that if the scriptures are true, and I believe they are true, Jesus Christ died to receive praise in every single one of those languages. That's what God is doing. People from every tribe and tongue and nation who worship him. Do we have a vision for that? Do we have a vision for what God is doing in the world? I mean, I am so thankful that we as a church are thinking about and praying about and scheming for global missions. Uh, you guys might not know these guys. Sorry, I'm going to point them out. Aaron and Caitlin Crow are in the back there. They are deacons of global missions for Midtown. The webs were here in the first service. And like, so thankful for you guys and for the webs and what you guys are doing to lead us in that way, to lead us to think about taking the gospel to the nations. Some of us in this room, you may be called to do that. You may be called to move to another country and to take the gospel to people who haven't heard. And for some of us, for probably the majority of us, we're going to be called to stay. And yet there's this beautiful dynamic happening in the world right now that God is bringing the nations here. So do we have a vision for that? Do we have a vision for sharing the gospel, not just with people who look like us and speak the same language, but for people who don't look like us? And for our friends and for our coworkers, do we have a vision for what God is doing to build a family from every tribe and tongue and nation? This is a universal king who's bringing a universal kingdom. And how does he do it? That's the third thing we see. He does it through the upside-down road to glory. The upside-down road to glory. Again, verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, here's what he means. When he calls himself the Son of Man, here's what he means. He is referring to a well-known prophecy in the book of Daniel. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. 
Daniel says, I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he, present, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's what God's saying in this vision. He's saying, look, I am the ancient of days. I am God Almighty, and I'm going to bring my kingdom to earth, and I'm going to set my people free, and I'm going to do it through a human being, through, through a son of man who's going to be my, my anointed king. And I'm going to declare him to be the king of the universe, and he will have a universal kingdom that will never fall. And so Jesus then picks up on that, and he steps into the story, and he says, the hour has come, I am here. The king is here. The son of man is here, and it's time for me to take the throne. But he doesn't take the throne in the way that we expect. His way to the throne is completely upside down. Look what he says. Look how he's glorified. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He says the Son of Man will be exalted. But he's going to be exalted by making himself low. He's going to ascend to the throne. But the only way he's going to ascend to the throne is by first putting his life on the sacrificial altar. He's going to be lifted up, but he's going to be lifted up by literally being lifted up and nailed to a cross. See, the crowds were expecting a king who would crush his enemies. What they got was a king who was crushed for his enemies. The king who dies in the place of his enemies to set them free from their greatest enemy. See, the Bible teaches that you and I and every single person who, who, who's ever lived has been held under the power of sin and death. We have rebelled against God. We have tried to be our own gods. And because of that, we have made ourselves enemies of God who deserve condemnation. And so if the king merely rides in to crush his enemies, then we are in a world of trouble. Because that would mean that he came to crush us. And yet that's not what he did. This king didn't come to crush us. He came to be crushed for us. He died in our place. Lived the life we should have lived, as we say all the time around here. Lived the life we should have lived. Died the death we deserve to die. Rose again, conquering sin and death so that simply through trusting in him, he forgives our sins. He makes us right with God. And he promises, I will raise you up on the last day and I am coming again and I'm gonna set all things right and I'm gonna make all things new crushed for his enemies so that he could liberate his enemies from their greatest enemy way to the throne is completely upside down here's the thing if you trust in him if you follow him he will turn your life upside down as well he will set you on the road to glory he will set you on the road to true greatness but what he shows us is that the road to true greatness is not the road that our world conditions us to take. Like, think about the way that we think. Think about the way that we're indoctrinated. The world tells us that the road to greatness is the road of looking out for ourselves. Jesus tells us that the road to greatness is the road of looking out for others. The world tells us that the road to greatness is the road of comfort. Jesus tells us that the road to greatness is the road to the cross. The world tells us that the road to greatness is by taking from others. 
Jesus tells us that the road to true greatness is by laying down our rights and our privileges and our resources and even our very lives for the good of others. The world tells us that the road to greatness is the road of upward mobility. Jesus tells us that the road to greatness is the road of downward mobility. Verse 25, look what he says. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now that's a crazy, like hates his life. I I thought we were supposed to have joy. I thought the Bible talks about rejoicing. And the fact is it does. Like Christianity is one of the only religions, maybe the only one, I have to think about that. I think it's the only religion I know of where joy is actually a command. So for Christians, that doesn't mean that we're simply miserable. In fact, it means the exact opposite. It means we have a joy that nothing in this life can take away. It means that my joy is not grounded in this life or in this world or what it can give me. My joy is grounded in Christ because Christ is my life. It means that he died and rose again to give himself to me. And because of that, I can gladly lose all things. It means that if faced with it, it means that if I have to, I choose Jesus over jobs, over families, over acceptance, over social capital, over sexual pleasure, over life itself. It means that knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent infuses your life with a joy and a meaning that even if you follow him to the cross, you go rejoicing. And that's been a literal reality for our brothers and sisters around the world throughout history. It was a literal reality for many of the early Christians. It was a literal reality for the apostles. It's been a literal reality for people in the history of the church. And it is still a literal reality for many of our brothers and sisters all over the world today. They have loved Jesus so much and they have found such joy in him that they have gladly laid down their lives for him. History is filled with accounts of men, of women, of of pregnant moms, of, of children even sometimes, who go to their deaths with joy, who praise God in the gulag and the concentration camp, who are heard singing as they are fed to the lions. Now let me ask you, do you have that kind of joy? Do you have the kind of joy that can face death? I'm not talking about some happy, clappy joy where we pretend everything's great and we slap a cheesy smile on our face and we play the church games. I'm talking about the real joy because the fact is that you and I will face death sometime. And we'll face it in some way. And if our joy is wrapped up in this world and what the things can give us, when we die, we lose those things. But if it's wrapped up in Christ, then you can go to your death singing because it only brings you closer to Jesus and Jesus is worth it. Here's the thing. For many of us in this room, we're not thinking about that for ourselves. We're not thinking about physical death. But many of us on a daily basis experience metaphorical death. The death of our hopes and our dreams. And some of us in this room, you know what it is to experience that. You know what it is to experience the death of your marriage. You know what it is to experience the death of your friendship. You know what it is to experience the death of your hopes and dreams. You know what it is to experience the death of everything you were living for. And it's not like just like, okay, knowing Jesus just takes away all the pain. Like 100% honest right now, I am grieving a deep 
heart-wrenching, soul-crushing loss in my own life. And it, and it feels like part of me has died. But Jesus is with me in the midst of the pain. And, and he's not just a king. He's the king who suffered and died. He is the king who has experienced that brokenness with me and for me. He is the king who laid down his life for me. He is the king with scars and wounds. He is the king who hangs on the cross and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he's also the king who rose from the dead and gives me life and says, it won't always be this way. And even while it is this way, I am here with you in the midst of it. So even through the tears, even when you are so heartbroken, you feel like you've been kicked in the stomach and you can't take a breath, I can sing. Because he is with me and he is for me and nothing can separate me from his love. That's why the events of this week changed the world. Because it's not just a political triumph and it's not just a military victory and it's not just an isolated thing that happened back there somewhere. It has changed the lives of literally billions of men and women all over the world and it can change your life and mine as well. This is the king we need. The king who laid down his life for his people, who laid down his life for his enemies, who shows us what true greatness looks like and says, hey, I want to do that in you as well. I want to make you great like that as well. He doesn't just lay down his life for us. He also teaches us to lay down our lives for others. Verse 26, that's the point of verse 26. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Now think of where, think where Jesus is literally about to go. Follow you where, Jesus? Where's the next place he's going? He's going to the cross. He says, follow me by loving the Father and loving people in such a way that I lay down my life for them. See, that whole lion and the lamb thing that we talked about, he wants to do that in you and me. He wants to make us the kind of people who can fearlessly speak the truth and who can boldly stand in the face of injustice. And yet he may, wants to make us the kind of people who can do that with humility and meekness and mercy and love. He wants our lives to be marked by true greatness, by the kind of greatness that marked his life. That's where the world-changing power of Christianity lies. It lies in the hearts of men and women who have been loved deeply by Jesus and who love others in return. It lies in the hearts of those who have been loved sacrificially by Jesus and now who go out and love others sacrificially lies in the fact that Jesus has made us right with God, that he has put his spirit within us, and he, he has given us the good news that God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ. And it lies in the fact that one day he's going to return, and he's going to set all things right, and he's going to make all things new. Because here's the thing, 2,000 years ago in this week that we're talking about, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. But one day he's going to come back, and he's going to be riding on the clouds. He was crushed that first week. One day he's going to come back and he is going to crush sin and evil and death itself. And he promises when he does, we are going to join with people from every corner of the globe, from every conceivable ethnic background, from every language spoken under heaven, from every tribe and tongue and nation, and we're going to worship him together and we're going to feast in a world made new. That's the hope that he gives us. That's the hope that ought to change our lives. That's the hope that changes the world. 
We, we celebrate that. I don't know if you think about this. We celebrate that every week here. We celebrate that in, in everything we do together, but specifically in the Lord's Supper. We're going to move to the Lord's Supper uh, in just a moment here. But here's the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a visible, tangible, edible reminder of that reality. The night before Jesus goes to the cross, he, he takes bread, he breaks it, says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Takes wine, pours it out, says, this is my blood, which is shed for you. And then he says, I want you to keep eating this bread and drinking this cup until I come back. This is how I want you to remember me, and this is how I want you to look forward day when I return. Because one day I'm coming back, and when I do, we are going to eat and drink together. Not just us and Jesus, but us and Jesus and all of his people from every tribe and tongue and nation, from brothers and sisters all over the world and all throughout history. And we're going to eat and drink together in a world made new. And so what we do today is, is almost, it's almost kind of like an appetizer of that. It's a teaser. It's like a movie trailer where it's like being reminded one day we will eat together in the new heavens and the new earth, in a world that Jesus has made new. So we're going to take this simple bread. We're going to take this simple cup. The way that we do this here, we'll have stations around the room. If you're a follower of Jesus, just come up, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and take it and return to our seats. We'll have gluten-free to my right uh, and to your left. And we're simply going to do what the church has done for 2,000 years all over the world. We're going to celebrate this fact, and we're going to look forward uh, to Christ's return. Maybe you're here, and you're not a follower of Jesus. And maybe you're here, and like, you're exploring these things, and you've got questions about this. And, and we would just encourage you, take this time just to be honest with yourself. When others are coming to take the bread and the cup, don't just do some perfunctory religious ritual. But like, take some time and think about it. And ask yourself these questions that we talked about earlier. What is it that I'm afraid to give up? What, what, what control, what power am I afraid to relinquish? I would encourage you, if you're a Christian as well, think about that. Because we all got those kind of things in our lives that it's like, I don't know if I really want to give that to Jesus. I don't know if I really want to trust him with that. But hey, this is the God who died and rose again for you. This is the God whose body was broken for you and whose blood was shed for you. You can trust him with that. Whatever pain, whatever struggle it is that you're walking through, you can trust him with that. He loves you so much that he died for you and he promised to rise again to set you free. So let's pray. Let's take the Lord's Supper.